0: Amen, amen, and amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today. We're in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Believe it or not, we are just two chapters away from actually finishing the book. I don't know what we'll do next, because uh, I mean, goodness, Luke's but the only book that exists in my mind right now. But, but we're getting close. I know, uh, man, it's good stuff. So, so Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Um, we're gonna let me just set the stage before we before we jump in. So Jesus has been betrayed. Judas betrayed him, led the crowds out, or the, the, the Jewish leaders, this crowd, this mob, out to arrest him. Uh, and then he was abandoned by the disciples. The one that, that well, there was two that followed him at a distance. Uh, we don't hear much from John, but then those who followed at a distance, we know that Peter denied him. So Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, abandoned, and denied. There's this circle of isolation, this circle of rejection that is growing around Jesus to the point that there's going, it's just going to continue to grow, it's going to continue to progress. Uh, and and eventually Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross, rejected by man and forsaken by God uh, and, and dying in our place for our sins. That's, that's where we're Now, in this moment, this passage that we've been studying, the Jewish leaders are are trying Jesus. They have put him on trial. They are seeking the opportunity, they are taking advantage of the opportunity to bring their murderous conspiracy against Jesus to a close. They are doing everything they can to kill Jesus. And so they arrest him. They bring him from the garden to Annas. There's three phases of this Jewish trial. Luke doesn't show us all of it, but we know that they bring him to Annas. Annas questions him. Annas was one of the previous high priests. Uh, Annas questions him and then sends him to Caiaphas, who is the reigning high priest. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the night question him and bring false accusation against him. And that whole night, as he's being questioned, he is also being mocked and beaten and ridiculed by those who were guarding him. It seems especially horrific to me as I think about what happened to Jesus because of who he is. It would have been horrific for anyone to be treated the way that Jesus was being treated. But this is Jesus. As we saw last week, Jesus is the promised prophet, the anointed Christ, the divine son of man, the eternal son of God. We know that Jesus is more than just a man. He is truly God and truly man. He had never done anything to deserve the things that he's experiencing And just consider what his life had been. He had gone from place to place throughout Judea, throughout Galilee, all across Israel, healing their infirmities, making them well, casting out demons. The whole cities, whole villages, when he would leave them, in some cases, whole cities and communities would be rid of demon-possessed people and sickness, and any kind of illness. It's shocking, the things that he did. Everywhere he went, it was better because he had been there. And he went about not just working these miracles and doing these acts of mercy, but he was teaching God's truth. He is God's incarnate word. Yet none of that mattered to them. It didn't bother them then to turn and reject him and beat him and mock him. And so early the next morning, as we read last week in Luke, early the next morning after the night of trials, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin convene again to make official what they had determined the night before. They would reject Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, their Messiah. In fact, when they asked him, Are you the Christ? He didn't answer the way that they would have expected. He didn't answer the way that they wanted him to. Instead, he demonstrates to them that he is the Son of Man and he is the Son of God. And when they heard that, that was it. They didn't need any more. In fact, the last verse of chapter 22 tells us what further testimony do we need. We've heard it for ourselves from his own lips. This man is a blasphemer. He deserves to die. In fact, it's actually the interesting that in this whole process, the irony of the whole situation, that as they're accusing him of blasphemy, Luke lets us see that they're actually the ones blaspheming. That they're the ones actually talking against God. That they're the ones actually rejecting God. And rather than repent of their sin, they're going to reject Jesus. But their rejection of him does not change the truth about him, And today, we're going to see that further play out. We're going to see that move forward further as Jesus moves from and is, is moved from his religious trial to his civil trial. And that's really what Luke chapter 23 uh, begins to lay out before us. Let's read. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And, and they began to accuse him, saying... We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before this, they had been at enmity with each other. In his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus was being accused of blasphemy. He was, denying the, he was denying the identity of God, denying the, the veracity, the truth of God. That's, that was their claim against him, that he was in some way diminishing and, and, and mistreating God by his own divine claims. It was, it was his divine claim, though, that, that, that had him in this place. It was his divine claim that, 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 that had... had, had Brought the Jews to the place where they were finished with him. They're, what more do we need to hear? We've heard it from his own lips. Let's be done with him. So the whole group of them stands up and brings them to Pilate. You see, here's the thing. When Jesus made the claims to be the Son of God, when Jesus made the claim to be the Son of Man, they're faced with a dilemma too, actually. In, in their, in, in their uh, tradition, in their religion, he was... He needed to die. He needed to be killed. He needed to be executed. And they don't have authority to do that. They, they, in, in, in fact, under Rome, Rome, Rome's rule, they were not allowed to carry out a death penalty in that way. They were not allowed to execute in that way. That's what John lets us know, that they didn't have the authority to do what they wanted to do. And so here they are, this Jewish council, 71 leaders. It's called the Sanhedrin, the high priest. 71 leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin Together, rise up and they bring Jesus to Pilate because their desire is to see Jesus dead. And so together they rise up and they, and they take Jesus to Pilate. Now just picture this scene. And this is not three or four people. This is not some small little group. This is not some small little uh, 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 band of people. This is 71 Jewish leaders. This is their aides and those who were with them and those who would be in the street that began to be curious about what was going on. This was the guards that were guarding Jesus. This was a large crowd walking into the courtyard of Jesus or, or, or walking into the courtyard of Pilate's house and calling on Pilate to act. Now here's the second dilemma they faced, second issue that they faced. Jesus deserved to die in their mind and they can't kill him. So Pilate says the answer for that. But that brings us to the second piece. Is the second part of the dilemma is Pilate couldn't give a rip about blasphemy of the God of Israel. He didn't care a lick about that. It doesn't matter to him. Any, he, who cares if somebody claims to be the God of Israel? He didn't recognize the God of Israel. He didn't bow to the God of Israel. He had no allegiance to the God of Israel. Who cares if this man is a blasphemer against the God of Israel? Who could care less? And these Jewish leaders, they, they know this. They understand it. And so when they come to Jesus, they're not bringing Jesus with accusations of his religious guilt. They're twisting the charges. They're, 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 they're bringing it and putting it in such a way that it brings some level of civil responsibility. See, they, they, they want Pilate to feel like Jesus is a problem for Rome as much as they feel like Jesus is a problem for Jews. So they bring the charges, three of them. We found this man misleading our nation. We found this man forget, forbidding us to, for, to, to give tribute to Caesar. And we found this man claiming to be the Christ the king. And that's important. Because again, Pilate doesn't care about a Christ. He couldn't care less about their Messiah. What he cares about, and what he should care about, is is this man seeking to revolt against Rome? Is he seeking to be a, a, a leader of rebellion and to, to claim authority over Jerusalem and come against the emperor in Rome? See, the focus of this trial, the focus of the civil trial now takes the claims, takes the focus off of the claims of divinity and now puts them squarely on his claims of supreme authority. And their hope was this that that Pilate would join them in rejecting Jesus as the king. That, That Pilate would join them in seeing Jesus as a problem to be handled. See, they refused to repent of their sin, and they rejected Jesus. They, they, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus, except to see him killed. And now they were doing everything they could, everything in their power to call Rome into this rejection of Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. See it's not just the Jews that are going to reject Jesus. That are going to lead him to the cross. But but by way of the Roman governor Pilate and the Roman agent Herod, Jesus is going to be rejected by Rome. And this isolation, this, this, this level of rejection is going to grow. In fact, it it seems Luke, because he doesn't give us all the details that maybe John gives, he doesn't let us see all of the interaction that even Mark and Matthew show us between Pilate and Jesus. He does allow us to see something that the others don't in in the interaction with Herod, but it seems as he walks through this passage in this civil trial, it seems that what he's letting us see is is, is the rejection, the disregard for Jesus as the king. You see, Jesus is is rejected as the king of the Jews intentionally. We see that happening in this passage in verse 1 through 3. We begin to see this this unfold. The whole company of them arose. The whole Sanhedrin, if you will, arose, brought him to Pilate. They had premeditated this moment. They knew exactly what they were going to do when this moment came. They had been conspiring since since, uh, before even Judas came to them uh, betraying Jesus. They had been conspiring how to kill Jesus. This was premeditated. It was intentional. It was willful. And here they are now, now at this moment, having all the evidence they think they need, ready to to bring him to Pilate, ready to bring him to be crucified, ready to see him executed. They had prepared for this moment. In verse 4, we see even when it appeared that Pilate was going to say he's innocent, what did they do? They didn't step back. They didn't accept the, the rule of the court. They, 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 they pressed. It tells us in verse 4 that they were urgent. And they pushed back against the ruling of Pilate. They pushed back against his answer that I see no guilt in this man. That's intentional. When Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and Jesus is being questioned by Herod and he doesn't answer him, what does he do in verse 10? Or what happens in verse 10 is that they begin to accuse him. All the way through, they are purposefully, willfully, intentionally rejecting Jesus and doing everything they can to ensure that Rome enters into that rejection with them. This is not an accident. This is not in in some way, oh, we didn't mean for that to happen. They were choosing it. They were purposing it. They were intentionally rejecting Jesus as their king. Jesus was rejected as Jesus as king of the Jews, deceptively. Look again at the charges they brought against him in in verse 2. When when they begin to bring the charges, they say, we found this man misleading our nation. He told us not to to pay tribute to Caesar. And he is saying, he is claiming that he's Christ a king. Uh, To be fair, just to be completely open and fair about this, Th- these claims, there's only one that's really an outright lie. There's only one that's really just blatantly false. Jesus never told them not to pay tribute to Caesar. In fact, if you think back in, in his week in the temple, I know it was about five years ago when we studied it, but in his week in the temple, he's teaching day in, day out, and, and he is having people come to him and question him and challenge him. <clears throat> He, and one of the questions they bring to him, that the, the scribes and the elders bring to him, do we pay tribute to Caesar? Do you remember his answer? It was Luke 20, 25, he says this, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That is not a rejection of paying tribute to Caesar. That is not a rejection of paying their taxes to Rome. He had said, let me see a Daenerys, whose picture is on it. It's Caesar's. Oh, well then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. It is not a rejection. So this is a blatant lie that they're telling to stir up Caesar. And for Caesar, this is one that he would be most concerned with. Because if they quit paying taxes, there's punishment that should be excised. And if he happens to be the one that's at the forefront of them not paying taxes, he's going to catch the brunt of that punishment. So they tell this lie. It's a blatant lie. But that's really the only one that's a blatant lie. Because wasn't Jesus going out and teaching people in opposition to the leaders of Jerusalem? Is it any surprise to us that they would believe so much in their lives that they thought they were truth and then be bothered that somebody comes in and begins to teach them differently? You see, if misleading their nation was confronting their lies and their hypocrisy and calling people to the truth and repentance towards God, if that is misleading the nation, if that is perverting the nation and the people of Jerusalem, then yes, he was guilty of that because he was doing everything to call them out of their Jewish traditions, to call them out from under the hypocrisy of Jewish leadership, to believe the truth of God and to see himself, to see him as the Christ, the Messiah, to see him as the son of God and the son of man, to yes, they, then, then yes, that's what he did. He absolutely did do it. And everywhere he went, he taught against those things. He taught the truth of God. He brought the reality of, of God. They were so blinded, they were so blinded that they, that they believed a lie as if it was the truth. And by what they were doing, I mean, you just consider this. They were doing, if, if their lie had been true, if, if Jesus truly had been a blasphemer, if Jesus truly had been powered, given power by the, by the devil, if Jesus truly was someone who was stirring up trouble for no reason, then they probably needed to be doing what they were doing. Well, we know that that was not who he was, but they presented this to Pilate not to in a twisted and, and manipulative fashion, and even this third this third accusation they make it's, it's presented to Pilate not, not in full honesty, not in full, um, uh, with, with, with full candor Jesus hasn't denied being the Christ. Jesus has, has actually affirmed that. But who's the Christ to Pilate? Why does he care about someone claiming to be the Christ? They make sure that Pilate hears that the Christ is a king. So they weren't really lying about this. But they are twisting it to present it to Pilate so that Pilate would see it as an issue and be required to do something about it, be required to respond. Let me just, this is a side note, this is not really part of the sermon, but, but so often we struggle with the ideas about am I, am I going to, is this God's will, this goal, this, this purpose that I have for God, is, is it God's will for me? Is it the thing that I should do? Am I standing in opposition to God or am I, am I uh, serving God? Uh, These people, they could have asked that question and and answered it clearly. Do you have to twist the truth? Do you have to manipulate the truth? Do you have to in some way be sneaky and and underhanded to accomplish the goal that you have set? Then then that's probably not God's goal for you. It's probably not not God's intended plan. In fact, if you're walking in lies and deception and and, 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 and staying in your blindness and disregarding the truth then there's probably a reality that the goals that you have in front of you are in opposition to his will, not in alignment with his will. God does not give us a plan that requires us to walk in deception and manipulation of other people. He just doesn't do it. And so, just take that for what it's worth. All right. Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews deceptively. We see them deceiving others to to accomplish their plan. Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews indifferently. Indifferently. Look at Pilate's reaction. So we see the Jews like they're actively seeking, intentionally seeking to see Jesus rejected. They're deceiving people. They're they're lying about him. They're they're making up stories about him. Every false accusation that they had brought during their trial, they they didn't line up. All these false accusations fell flat on their face. But here they are standing in front of Pilate and they finally got their story together and they're like, this is what we're going to tell him. And how does Pilate respond? To their rejection of Jesus, how does Pilate respond? Well, I don't see any guilt in this man. And you might think, oh, well, that that, that means he's on Jesus' side. Well, maybe not. You see, the reality is this, is that if if Pilate had looked at Jesus, if Pilate had looked at Jesus and believed that he was a king, he was duty-bound by the Roman government, by his allegiance to the Roman government, to stop Jesus. I don't think that he, he, he sees no guilt in the man. Because he doesn't see any reason why he should condemn him as Christ a king. If he had believed that Jesus was a Christ who could lead a revolt. Who, or uh, In some way a rebellion against Rome. He would have been duty bound to do something against him. To stand opposed to him. Instead he looks at him and he thinks. I, I don't see anything. I don't don't see that. On the other hand, when he comes out to them and he says, I don't see any guilt in him, when he gives the ruling that he's innocent, (laughs) that should end the trial. He's the one in authority. Like, they're bringing him because he's the one in authority. But what does he do? He listens to their complaint. He listens to their argument back, and he cowers to it. He bows to it. And without any concern for the man that he just said is innocent, he looks for a way just to get him out of his life. I just don't want anything to do with him. He's indifferent to Jesus altogether. He wants nothing to do with him. And so when he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, he's like, Oh, here's my opportunity. I'll let Herod deal with this. Take him to Herod. Herod can handle this. It's funny because we find out that he and Herod were enmity before, right? Like, like before this day, they, they weren't friends. Pilate is not doing this because he likes Herod. He couldn't care less. He just wants the problem to go away. And in his indifference... To a man who is innocent or to a king who would be leading a revolt. In his indifference to Jesus, he is rejecting him as king. You see, the reality is it doesn't take action to reject something. It doesn't take purpose and willful decisions to reject something. It just takes a willful decision to do nothing. Jesus is the central figure of all of history. He is truly God and He is truly man. All of history it pivots on Him. We cannot just do nothing about Jesus. We must all do something with Jesus and we will either come to Him and receive Him as King or we will actively, deceptively or even indifferently Reject him as king. And that's exactly what Pilate was doing. Indifferently rejecting Jesus. And we see that Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews fiercely. Verse 10 tells us that that as he is brought to Herod, so so Pilate sends him off indifferent to the situation. I just don't want anything to do with it. Pilate sends him off. Jesus is brought to Herod. Herod begins to question him, and Jesus says nothing. And look at what verse 10 says. It it, it says the chief priests and the scribes. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the rulers of of Jerusalem. This is the ones. This is like their... Uh, their their Senate or their Supreme Court, if you will, these men who speak on behalf of Jerusalem stood by vehemently accusing. Look, they're not taking no for an answer. Man, they are angry about this. They are fiercely pursuing Jesus' rejection, not just for themselves, but for Rome. I mean, they are the the constant. There's two characters of the constant throughout this process. There's the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the Jewish leaders, and there's Jesus, and there's this constant tension between them. And at every stage of this civil trial, we see the prosecutors, these Jewish leaders, going against the defendant, Jesus, and they will not take no for an answer. And so when Jesus stands there silently, they bring their accusations even more intensely, even more purposefully, even, even fiercely, if you will. They will not leave him alone. They will not let this rest. Everything in their power is being done to ensure that the day ends with Jesus' execution or at least the pronouncement of his guilt that would lead to his execution. They're seeking to convince Herod in the same way that they sought to convince Pilate. Reject Jesus as king of the Jews and he did Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews disgracefully the thing is he didn't need them to do that you see as Jesus was being brought to Herod Herod hears he's coming and he is excited why is he excited because he wants to see him do some miracle because Herod already doesn't see Jesus as any kind of king, as any kind of authority. He sees him as a monkey at the end of a string that will do his tricks. He sees him as entertainment. He sees him as someone who will submit to his authority. He he sees Jesus as one that would bow before Herod and do what Herod commands. Before Jesus has even walked into his courtyard, Herod has already rejected him as king. And then, believe it or not, Jesus does not submit to Herod. He does not perform any miracles before him. He won't even answer his questions. And what is Herod's response when he hears the insistent accusations of the Jews? He and his soldiers begin to treat Jesus with contempt and mock him. Oh, you're a king, are you? You're not dressed like a king. You don't look like a king. Let's dress you up like a king a robe on him, a splendid robe, probably came out of Herod's own belongings. And they laughed at him, they ridiculed him. Oh, yeah, you make a king. As if these clothes were the thing that gave anyone any kind of authority. As if just putting some dress-up clothes on someone would change the, their identity. And disgraced Jesus. They did everything they could to disgrace Jesus. He was rejected as the king of the Jews disgracefully. One last thought on his rejection. I I would submit to you that Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews unanimously. I do not intend to say, and I don't want you to think, that all of the created order had rejected him as the king of the Jews. That's not true. But the participants in this passage that we are studying, all have rejected him as king. You see, what we don't tend to think about often is that at the same time that Jesus is the greatest unifier, he is also the greatest divider. Here's the thing is that Jesus unites his people unto himself. And when he does it, the Bible teaches us that when he unites us to him. He divides us out from the world. He'd even taught that in Luke. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, right? The gospel that he brings, that brings us into life, that saves us and redeems us, divides us out, makes us distinct from the world. He doesn't draw us out of the world yet. He's left us in the world, but he's made us not of the world. We have a different identity. He makes us distinct in the world. There's a division drawn. There's a line of demarcation drawn. And here's the other side of that that we don't often think about. In the same way that he unites his people as the great uniter, everyone who would not come to him unites in rejection of him. (laughs) <laughs> what happens here is there's literally, simply, two kinds of people in the world. We talk about diversity. We talk about differences in the ways we have different perspectives. Don't misunderstand me. I do believe there's socioeconomic differences, ethnic differences. There's differences in social status, social income, and things like that. There's differences in male and female. But there's a reality that there's a difference. There's really only truly one difference that makes a difference. And that is whether you have rejected or received Jesus as king. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are his and those who are rejectors. Those who belong to him, who have been united to him, and those who have rejected him. And we see that play out here in this passage. The Sanhedrin is the first example. The Sanhedrin, let me just tell you a little bit about them. 71 leaders in the Jewish tradition, led by the high priest. And they were divided sharply in their doctrinal perspectives between Sadducees and Pharisees. They didn't like one another. Sadducees were were higher in wealth. They were higher in status. Pharisees were more more blue-collar workers. And they had a view of the the resurrection that the Sadducees fought against. So not only were they different and distinct in their views of theology and doctrine, they were also distinct in their status in culture and in the Jewish life. They didn't agree with one another. They tolerated one another, but they didn't agree with one another. And what does it tell us happens in verse 1 of chapter 23? The whole company of them arose in full agreement with one another. The first time probably in their history they unanimously voted on this. Jesus must die. He is not our king. And so they take him to Pilate. another step of unifying rejection of Jesus. Because the the Jews didn't like the Romans. They couldn't stand that they were being ruled by Rome. They saw themselves as a sovereign nation. They were God's nation. His chosen people in the world. What in the world do we have to do? Go to Rome to get our execution? They hated it. The whole theology of their Messiah was one who would come and liberate them from Rome. Who would stand like the judges of the Old Testament and, and lead them out and destroy the oppressors. They were looking for someone like that. They rejected Jesus as that. Because Jesus wasn't going to do that. In the way that they wanted him to do it. But here, in this moment, to reject Jesus, they unite themselves with Rome. They walk in unison with him to unite in the rejection of Jesus. And in the last verse, we've already pointed it out. In verse 12, Herod and Pilate, they didn't like each other. They didn't get along with one another. But from this day forward, they were friends. There's two kind of people in the world. Those who reject Jesus and those who revere Jesus. I'm all about diversity in the church. I'm all about pushing past our socioeconomic divides that that that, that I don't I, I I'm happy to celebrate them. I'm happy to, to push past them and work towards them. But there's one diversity that cannot be. You will either revere Jesus or you will reject Jesus. We are not diverse in that way all doesn't mean that we don't long for those who would reject him to come around us or us to go around them but the people of god are those who would revere him and not reject him and why i mean i mean it it seems so clear why is there any reason that we should revere him it's obvious the unanimous decision it's obvious that none of them saw anything in jesus to be revered it's obvious why would we revere him why wouldn't we reject him too well if we're honest and i I hope we'll be honest here there's many ways that we continue to reject him Every time we sin, walk in disobedience, reject his plan for our life. Every time we sin in commission, we're rejecting his authority as king. He didn't really mean that. His grace is sufficient. I don't don't have to obey. Sometimes in the things we don't do, We're rejecting him as the authority of a king. And truth be told, we live in a world that in every way is seeking to reject him. Some intentionally, some just trying to ignore him. I just don't, come on, I mean, he lived a long time ago. We don't really have to continue to deal with Jesus, do we? Others deceive themselves by the ways that they view Jesus. Others mock and treat Jesus disgracefully by the things that they do to his people. I mean, if we're to be honest, there's a lot of rejecting Jesus as the king of the Jews still going on. Well, why, why would we revere him? What's well, not explicit in this passage, but I think it's clearly implied. I think it's clearly implied in the very fact that Luke wrote these words. There is no reason to write these words to tell this man's story if there's not a reason to see past this passage. If he did not... Receive Jesus or revere Jesus as king? Why in the world would he have begun this with, with a desire to, to make sure that Theophilus could be confident in the things that he had heard about Jesus? In the broader context of the scripture, why would Matthew, Mark, or John sit down to write a story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus if he was not a man to be revered? Why in the world would God have ever given us his written word that we might know his incarnate word if Jesus was not intended to be revered but the broader context of scripture is clear Jesus is to be revered Paul writing into the church in Philippi in chapter 2 begins to tell us of his humility taking on the nature of man humbling himself as a servant not grasping hold of his divinity and hanging on to it but coming and putting on flesh and dwelling among us and humbling himself as a servant even to death and death on a cross He says in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. You see, these three players, these Jewish leaders, Pilate and and, uh, Herod, they may unanimously reject Jesus, but God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is a day coming, brothers and sisters, who, who, for, for those who revere him and for those who reject him, that they will bow. And see Jesus as king. And every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One other one. Let me just share with you. Revelation 19, 11, 16. As John is seeing the revelation of Jesus play out before him in, in, in a vision given to him by God. He says this in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Any question about who John's seeing on this horse it's the same one that he said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus. Sitting on this white horse, robe dipped in blood, diadems on his head, eyes like a flame of fire, and a name written on him. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Going on in verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, because he is a king. He will tread the winepress wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The testimony of scripture is this, Jesus, the rejected Jewish king, is the highly exalted king of kings whose sovereign reign will never end. He is king of kings and lord of lords. That means that he's king over all other kings. That means he's lord over all other lords. There is no one higher, no one more supreme, no one more glorious, no one more worthy of revering than Jesus Christ the king. Should we revere him? Yes and Amen. Absolutely, he should be revered because Jesus, the rejected king, is the highly exalted king. Highly exalted by God, by his sacrifice, God brought him to glory. He is the highly exalted king of kings whose sovereign reign will last forever and ever. Listen, because this is the truth, we must quit walking in the example of those who would reject him. We must quit making the mistakes of those who walk in rejection of this king. We must revere him. Because Jesus is the king of kings, his sovereign reign demands faith-filled allegiance. It demands it. You cannot come to Jesus without trusting him. You can only reject him. Instead of rejection, instead of intentional or indifferent rejection, Jesus demands our faith-filled allegiance. Coming to Him. Believing His claims for divine identity. He is the Son of God. Submitting ourselves under Him as supreme authority because we believe He is the King of kings. Trusting in His divine purpose and mission that He is the Christ sent to save. This is Jesus. And we cannot revere him if we don't trust him. We must believe him. We must align ourselves in faith. Anything less is rejection. You cannot trust or you cannot revere Jesus without believing Jesus. That's why he says, "You must trust me." We're going to revere him. We must repent of any of our previous rejection and align ourselves with him in faith, believing him. And I'm not talking about the the fullness of faith that grows as it matures. I'm talking about the mustard seed of faith. Just Just the start, that little inkling start that grows into a tree that's larger than all the other plants in the garden talking about just the beginnings of this. This is all that's required. Believe in me in the weakness and simplicity. Believe. Trust him. That you might begin to revere him. Because Jesus is the king of kings, his sovereign reign demands our humble obedience instead of demanding Him to do our bidding or perform tricks for us, essentially calling Him to obey us, we must bow before Him. We must submit ourselves to Him. We must give up our selfish and sinful will that we might humbly and obediently walk in His. Instead of going our own way, clinging to those Way the clinging to our own sins. We must repent. We must turn from the lies we believe. We must turn from the things we place our hope in. We must turn from the, the activity that we know is, is dishonoring and is, 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 is the sin that sent Jesus to the cross. We must turn from it so that we can turn in faith to Christ, humbly obeying. Anything less than repentance is rejection. And I'm not talking about perfect life. I'm not talking about that you're not still stumbling in sin. I'm not talking about that you're not a child that's stumbling along growing up in your repentance. I'm talking about that you see the lie and you desire the truth. That you just begin to lean towards Jesus. Without repentance, you cannot revere him. Without some level of repentance and turning from your selfish ways, you cannot revere him. You will only reject him. But he, 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 him standing as the king of kings demands our humble obedience that this is, this is, this begins in repentance. We must repent. We must continue repenting. And we must continue believing. Because Jesus is the King of kings. His sovereign reign deserves eternal glory. Let me just make this last point with one last passage of Scripture. Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Another point where John is amazed by this revelation of Jesus He writes, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. Forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Brothers and sisters, the world will stand and unanimously reject Jesus. But the people of God, the creation of God, will stand and unanimously revere him forever and ever. And as we walk in faith and repentance, we join with them in that unanimous voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and glory, wealth and honor. Glory to him be forever and ever. And together with him we will fall on our face and worship. Jesus is the king of kings. And that is what he deserves. He is worthy to receive that. Anything less. Anything less. Might as well be rejection. we're going to revere him, we must worship him above all others. That means we're going to have to repent of all our sin. And we're going to have to believe in him and all his claims. And even in the weakness of that and the frailty of our faith and repentance, he is revered he is honored and he is glorified jesus the rejected jewish king is highly is the highly exalted king of kings whose sovereign reign will never end do you know him as that today are you going to receive jesus and revere him Where you walk in rejection, see there 's no one in this world that 's not responsible to do something with Jesus. What are you doing? Is there, is there pet sins in your life that you 're trying to cling and hold to and hide away? We're called in the scripture to forgive as we've been forgiven. Are you holding a grudge? Are you jealous of, of, of other people, of his people? Are you in some way dividing yourself off from him? You know, to reject his people is a rejection of him. That's why when he said to Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's like, well, he's being called Saul at the point. How have I persecuted you? You persecuted me through my people. Are you willfully disobeying him? Are you walking in some way that dishonors him? Is your life filled with things that that demonstrate a rejection of him as the king of kings and lord of lords? Maybe you've never revered him, maybe you've never trusted, you've never repented. Maybe you've pretended and played religion, but in your playing of religion and acting as if you can do this on your own, that is a rejection of him. Would you hear this word today and revere him, Christ the King? Let's pray. Father God, your glory and your goodness, your grace, your greatness, it becomes so evident in the life of Jesus. may, May you fill us in our minds and souls and spirits with him now with the truth of who he is and what he's done. Would you lead us to respond rightly? Father, would you... Would you help us as your children? Would you help us to see those areas that we continue to reject? We reject your authority, that we reject your desires for us, that we reject your good for us, and we seek to walk in our own way. Would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to believe you more fully? Would you lead us to revere your Son that we would join even with you, Father, in seeing him highly exalted. That every knee would bow and every tongue confess and that we would be doing that willingly, that we would be on our face in worship, crying out to our King. Father, would you move on us, your people, if there's any in this room today that have played in religion and thought in some way they could earn their position, they could be good enough, that they could do the work, that they could earn your love, that they could earn their salvation, that they could redeem themselves by all the religious practice. Would you call them to repentance today? Regenerate their soul. Wake them up that they might walk in repentance and therefore revere Jesus. And for those of us that have enjoyed your goodness and are striving hard for repentance and faith, and, would you sanctify us, make us more like Jesus, encourage us, strengthen us, embolden us, that we might live every day for the glory of of his name, the glory that he deserves forever and ever. I pray these things, Father, in the Son in, in the name of your Son. And for his glory. Amen.